Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by Rick Heitzman, the founder and CEO of First Mark Capital. Hi, Rick. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm good. We are in studio here, and we are on Election Eve. It is Tuesday afternoon. We, got, we have a ton of stuff to talk about today. Okay, There's tons of stuff going on. Public markets, crypto, private markets, a whole host of things here. Um, I have a great conversation with Jake Wood, the CEO founder of Groundswell, also the founder of Team Rubicon, which is an amazing organization. We're going to talk all about that with Joe Marchese, the build partner at Human Ventures. Okay, So, stick around. That's coming up after Rick and I go through just... We're going to go through a lot here, people. We're we're going to talk about Elon, Twitter, Tesla, the interrelations of that. We're going to talk about SBF, FTX, Binance, BTC, the whole shebang. Okay, But Rick, here we are. By the time our listener is taking all this beautiful content in, there's going to be a pretty clear indication of how the midterm elections went. Okay, And obviously, a lot of people feel like the Dems are going to lose the House and the Senate. It's not that weird of occurrence in a midterm election, a first-term president. I'm just curious. Let's assume that that does happen. You know, There's a lot of data that suggests in public markets that that's good for the stock market. People like you know divided government. How is that Played out in in your you know twenty plus years as a VC. How, how what does it do for for private markets? I think it's the same for uh, in the, both the public markets and private markets. That divided house, divided executive branch and legislative branch means not much gets done. And as we know, and as we saw the opposite in the world of Trump, that having rules of the road and having some consistency and knowing what's going to happen matters a lot. So knowing that not much is going to happen, and you're pretty certain of that, provides at least one less fear in your investment equation. Yeah. So I guess the point would be is like if your fear was that a Democratic Congress with a uh, you know, Democrat in the White House is that maybe interest rates could go higher, maybe further fiscal stimulus, maybe further regulatory scrutiny, like all those the thing, the big thing in the private market is regulatory. So there's not much yeah. tax. There's yeah. not much, you know, there's some, you know, macro things, but the whole thing is regulatory. Two pieces, right? You're going to have the piece about MA. And you know everything that's going on in M&A, there's been a tremendous slowdown in M&A due to the regulatory environment. And then there's some specific to individual industries, healthcare, financial technologies, et cetera. Okay. As a VC, we know what the, the, the outcomes are as far as exits, right? So you can see a company in five to 10 years um, go public. You can see strategic M&A. You can see them go out of business, that sort of thing. The IPO window's closed, okay? So under a divided government with maybe less resolve for like sharp regulatory do you think we could see an uptick in M&A? We haven't seen a ton of it. We saw the start of this year, that big Microsoft for Activision yeah. deal. You saw that Which the is EU, still hung up. Well, you saw that the EU is, is investigating yeah. that right now, and they've been a, a thorn, I think, in Microsoft's um, acquisitive side in the past here. I'm just curious, like a lot of the companies that you have um, that maybe you, know, you can't even speculate when an IPO, maybe it's 2024, right? Yeah. That sort of thing. Might there be an opportunity for tuck-in acquisitions, 
strategic acquisitions. That's there there can be. I mean, the, you're you're still going to have the same appointed members that are overseeing these yeah. types of things. So it's it's not going to change everything. But at the same time, you know, there there is more of a balance. There is more of a of a thoughtfulness across the board. So you know, you'd like there to be a more active M and A market. You'd like there to be more competition from a, a private market to public M and A. And hopefully, you'll see a little bit of a relaxation of regulatory environments. You know that I always think about markets in general through the lens of the public markets. And and one of the reasons I love having people like you and Jeff and Joe, um, you know, and a whole host of others um, join me is that I think you guys have this really good barbell approach with like, you always have an eye on public markets and comps, that sort of thing, but you're also actively advising many, many companies in the private tech markets. And you're seeing, I guess, the flow through of a lot of what's going on there into you know, the private markets, but usually there's a big lag, and we've talked about that. Yeah. We're, so we've see, you see a big lag in valuations. You also see a lag in, in reaction. Sometimes um, sometimes you actually see it going both ways. And you know, sadly, we've talked about layoffs here for the last year, and then there's some people, including Meta, who are just getting to them. There's some people who have gone through Robinhood, the third round of layoffs after, you know, all the OK Computer listeners know to say, you do it once, you're decisive, you cut as as deep as you need to go, and this shouldn't be a repeat offender. Um, And so you're starting to see, and coming out of, call it the last last spot of, of board meetings, and probably about a dozen board meetings over the last month or so, you know, you're starting to see kind of that labor market shift a little bit. Um, you know, people are less concerned about bringing folks on. They're less concerned about holding on to recruiters. Obviously, they care a lot about their talent and their people, and they really want the people that are there to be motivated, have a sense of doing a great mission that has a great goal at the end. But it's less about, oh my God, how am I going to get the next person in the door? And then the probably the last shoe to drop on that was the the meta layoffs. It's, yeah. As the uh, the uh, the put was always being able to say, hey, if I I could always go to Facebook or Google and get a job. Yeah, and I guess you know to your point, I mean, you've been telling our listeners for a while that your advice to founders is like, listen, this is going to be a difficult period. We can all see it. This isn't the start of 2022. And like you said, be decisive, make those sorts of cuts. So you don't have to you know keep coming back and have a death by a thousand cuts. It weighs on morale. It weighs on a whole host of things. So I guess earlier this week, you know, the headline was that Facebook was going to Meta was going to be doing mass layoffs here. They have eighty-seven thousand workers, and I think your point, and you've mentioned this on many occasions, is that Alphabet, Meta, you know, I mean, like all these large platform companies, you know, if you got laid off from a startup, let's say in Q one or Q two of this year, you, you you would say there was always a place for you at a larger. There's o- there's always been a place, and there was probably a deficit, and we were just talking about it internally today with our talent team. That there was, you know, a deficit of, you know, you might not go for, even in Q2, you might not go from a, a great startup to Meta or Alphabet, but you could always go to a Macy's. Yeah. There's always there's always a place to land, and I think you're starting to see a concern that there's is there always going to be a place to land in the future, and this might be, you know, one of the first signs of consumers, especially young consumers, um, Henry's high income, not rich yet, millennials. 
of you know them coming uh, facing a comeuppance. Yeah. So this was the, the metal one was really interesting because about a week and a half ago the stock was down twenty five percent in one day and was after they reported their Q three and gave disappointing guidance and and you mentioned Jeff before so Jeff Richards was on with me last week and we were talking about meta and I told him I kind of bought a little bit you know the stock is down seventy five percent from its highs a year ago and you know whatever Mark Zuckerberg and the executive team saw about their core business a year ago or you know at some point in 2021 you know causing them to spend tens of billions of dollars on rebranding and refocusing this company that has a third of the world's population that they could call a monthly active user over 3 billion people at the time they knew that this was not going to be met with like a level of exuberance the Nasdaq was just topping out no one knew that but interest rates were starting to go higher here and so the fact is that he doubled down on his commitment to the strategy this was a couple weeks ago but they didn't talk about cutting spending. But then two weeks later, after the stock's down 30%, what do they do? They announce mass layoffs. It allows him to stick to whatever his view is of this company going forward, but also appease investors who are looking for cost reductions. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's Mark Zuckerberg's law of things, stupid is not one. So, you know, if you think about what he had to do, he has a vision. It's not a bet the company vision because the company is obviously wildly successful and very large. But he's putting $250 billion into the metaverse, which is, you know, basically, you know, would it be that in alone would just be a, a top 20 of all time market cap company. So he's betting the company on that. But at the same time, he has the perfect business model of generally user generated content, which is socially shared and produces tons of cash. And so the goal should be, hey, how do I run a good business, maybe even a great business on one side, invest some of those profits in what I think is next in the metaverse, while at the same time making sure I'm running a good business and I'm thoughtful about costs? Yeah, and I, I guess where Jeff and I were kind of going back and forth a little bit is like for me with a stock that was much loved, you know, a year ago where the sentiment couldn't be worse. Okay, the stock performance, you just mentioned $250 billion. I mean, that's the market cap of this company right now. They have $40 billion um, in cash. It was supposed to be, or is on its way to be, a trillion-dollar market cap You know, this time um, a year ago. And I look at something like this, and I say, the pendulum has shifted so far one way. Whether you like Zuckerberg, whether you like his vision of the future, whether you like the business model and what the product does to people, it's too profitable for what it is. And little things on the the margin, like announcing job cuts, or the sort of thing that have the stock bouncing. So my play is not a long-term one; it really is a short-term kind of reversion trade to that downtrend. But um, I think the unemployment thing is really important. The fact that you are now starting to talk at your team, and I know that you guys have been advising your portfolio companies for a long time to make decisive cuts, okay, and do it early. But here's the thing that's interesting. The last piece of this puzzle for the U.S. Federal Reserve is having that unemployment rate go up. They're actually, they haven't seen that really happen. In the uh, jobs report that we just saw for October last week, they saw it tick up a little bit from 3.5% to 3.7%. That's really near a 40-year low. And so, when you think about this, where was all of the over-exuberance in the market, really, or economy over the last few years? A lot of it had to do with gig economy, startup economy, small, medium business. And then and these large platforms hiring hundreds of thousands of people during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're Amazon, you're hiring every single person. Facebook, Google, some of the gaming companies, um, and you know there were some people working multiple jobs too during that time. So it, it was it was incredible employ. It was in, in retrospect, it was an incredible time. 
Let's talk about this, Rick, because I know this is a space that you know you, you've kept an eye on. And from a first mark standpoint, you made some investments um, in and around crypto. Um, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting um, is that you know we, we've had this gentleman named Sam Bankman-Fried, who's the CEO, founder of FTX, which is a large retail crypto exchange. They had their own stable coin. Um, this guy, based on his own trading and his own hedge fund, okay, had been this kind of you know buyer of last resort for all of these crypto funds and some of these other platforms that have. Gone under, and for a whole host of reasons, largely I think having to do with leverage, and then really some of the stable coins that that these platforms um, have. Maybe the collateral wasn't exactly what they suggested. Maybe they shouldn't up. be called stable coins. Correct. Anymore. They were very uh, unstable. Um, but he would come in and one of his entities, and they'd back these yeah. things and they'd take them under. Well, all of a sudden today, the headline is that FTX.com is being bought by its biggest competitor, Binance, which is fascinating because. Sam Bankman-Fried had been the buyer of last resort. Now he needed one, and Binance is doing it. Now Binance and, and the CEO, what he tweeted out was like, this deal is based on due diligence that we have not done yet, so it could fall apart at any moment. And what's interesting to me is that you know when Bitcoin had sold off because there were fears about FTX and their, their um, solvency, um, and then when the Binance news came out, it rallied up above 20,000. Well, as we speak, it just did a U-turn over the last few hours. This is Tuesday afternoon, and it's back near $18,500. And what's more interesting to me is that that NASDAQ followed it lower here. So, talk to me a little bit about this news, correlations to yes, you know, like, those, like markets. There's three yeah. things in yeah. there. Yeah. Hey, what does this news mean? And as an active investor in that ecosystem, how do we think about that? What does it mean for Bitcoin, and what do we see going forward? And then what is, and then what does correlation mean? And maybe I'll go in reverse order there. I, I think the correlation we've seen it across the board that everybody was saying crypto is a hedge against the Nasdaq, or this is a hedge against that. More than ever, we're seeing complete correlation of baseball cards to crypto to startup economy to you know large cap you know a large cap arc ETF. So things in general, maybe aside from energy, are all moving in the right direction, and they're all moving as it uh, equates to liquidity. So as liquidity comes out of the system, as interest rates rise, the prices are falling. And sometimes they're falling faster than someone could catch them. And especially in what's a believer community at this point in crypto. Are they of, still believers? That's the thing that's I, really I, funny. People aren't selling. I don't see there being a lot of selling nor buying, actually. If you look at volume, I mean, the interesting thing, uh, you don't want really to look at price, but you look at volume. So if you look at volume, the volumes kind of aren't there. And therefore, when there's a distressed seller, so let's say, you know, Binance, when they said they had to do diligence, my guess is a lot of that's balance sheet diligence and a lot of the leverage. And my guess is they're going to have to unwind a lot of these this leverage through the sale of coins. So obviously, they're going to have to sell, you know, semi-stable coins. They're going to have to sell uh, Bitcoin. They're going to have to sell all of this crypto. And who's going to be the buyer there? You, the market's not efficient enough to absorb that. And I think that's why you're seeing the volatility there. And I think that's where you're seeing some fear in that part of the market. Before we get to the other two components, I, I just think that, you know, the, the, 
the support of Bitcoin is something that's really interesting. My co-host, who you know, Danny Moses of On The Tape Podcast, who, with Guy and me, he's been talking about this for over a year, is that he thinks that there's something really evil lurking in these stable coins, Tether in particular. That was fought around Tether is like as old as like the, 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 the crypto hills here. Um, but we've seen it one by one over the course of this year that, and you know, this was the st- in, in the summer of 2021, USDC, um, which is um, backed by Coinbase, that's their stable coin. You know, there was issues about what is the collateral um, for that. And so we saw, you know, so to me, this has been going on for a very long time. I guess it almost feels like a a bit of a shell game here because SBF, okay, FTX was backstopping. All of these other ones were failing. Now we have Binance. Literally, this is their main competitor. If he wants to put them out of business, he could put them out of business right now. But he could also put himself out of business. Imagine if that completely. It's it's, it's like the financial crisis, like when all the banks were going over, who was next? Who was next? And if they have to sell all their coins, obviously the Binance collateral goes away also. And supposedly that was part of what Sam was doing at FTX is he was supporting the ecosystem, maybe because he wanted to, maybe because he had to. And he had to support the ecosystem for his own balance sheet. And he might have been. It might have been what the today's news is saying is his balance sheet might have been more precarious than you know when you saw him on uh, you know in a panel with Supermodel. Yeah. So let's talk about the correlations though, because interestingly enough, the Nasdaq turned when you know when Bitcoin dropped uh, two thousand points. We have not seen that in a very long time. And so to me, when you think about who are the buyers, there's no retail enthusiasm for crypto at all right now, right? So they're not there. And then maybe we've seen some money you know move in back into the stock market, but it certainly came out. Of mega cap tech, and that stuff is probably um, a bit more correlated to crypto, especially let's call it the you know high valuation names that have been kind of crucified over the last year and a half too. I just think it's interesting at this stage of the game that the Nasdaq would stage that sort of reversal based on a crypto uh, move, especially you know when you were seeing some small capitulations, things that didn't make sense in the market earlier this year. You know you knew there were some margin calls occurring. You knew that there was some leverage unwinding. You knew people were covering shorts when there was it was a much more active market and a much more volatile market being played. Today, that doesn't seem like it's the case, especially in crypto and especially as it relates to the Nasdaq. So I just it just shows that these systems might be weaker. And might be not as resilient as we'd hope they were. Yeah, I mean, listen. At the end of the day, all the people that have been pushing it on Twitter, you know, they all there's no more laser eyes. You know, you know they're not tweeting these long threads about the religion of this. Matt sort of Damon's thing. making movies again. Yeah, I mean, I guess fortune doesn't favor the brave people. All right, well, let's talk to me about like how you're thinking about the space because again, at First Mark, you guys have made some investments over the last few years, um, and and some of them, you guys, you, you've kind of articulated this before. More of the picks and shovels sort of thing. Picks and shovels. And, you know, we believe in software that does jobs, right? It could be video game software that makes you happy. It could be workflow software and financial services that uh, enables compliance. And it could be crypto projects that do jobs like Helium providing Wi-Fi. And we've talked about that in the pod before. Yeah, we have. I have a Helium router. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. You're printing money. Yeah, well, um, it was. <laughs> I don't think but, uh, it prints anything right now. It's Rick, we'll, we'll have to we'll, have a talk, we'll about, we'll that. talk about that. We'll talk about that off pod. But um, so we're investors in the ecosystem. We think there are a lot of projects which make sense. We think there's probably more projects that don't make sense. But we, you know, we're prepared for what the crypto winner is, and I think the key thing that we're thinking about in terms of crypto winner, especially you know here in the middle of November, is you know we're not expecting the winner to be over if Pucks Honey Phil sees his shadow or doesn't see his shadow. I forget which one it is. That you know in you know March, April next year, you know Bitcoin's back at forty thousand. 
you know, we're, we're saying, hey, these are long arcs. And, you know, especially on days like today, where it's not even a financial arc, it's also rebuilding trust. It's also um, some of these projects going from speculation to actually doing jobs to actually having operating metrics around those jobs. So there's a long way to go to, to get to the other side. And we're just starting that journey. So the, this might be a, a long winter that's coming. Yeah. And I guess just as someone who looks at like, speculative markets for the last 25 years. My career was born in one in 1997 at a long short equity hedge fund. Um, you know, like periods of, of excess like this and, and just rampant speculation, not just from retail, but also institutions, and especially where there is leverage involved. They're not going to, it's not going to end like this. The, like what happened today is, is probably the start of a capitulation phase. And so, you know, a lot of people, and you and I were talking about it before, people like there's this mirage that 20,000 or so in and around that, you know, either side of it is some sort of support. It's not people. I mean, this thing, you know, had kind of bottomed out in 19, you know, in the low single digits, yeah. thousands. Okay. And then it consolidated after it took off after the start of the pandemic in around 10,000 and then all, went all the way to 70, and here we are. The fact that we're down so much from 70,000, you know, like within a year, and we've been really going nowhere over the last couple of months in and around this 20,000, these headlines could just be the start. I mean, you need to have some sort of washout here. And all those retail holders have been hanging on for dear life. They, they, all those influencers that they followed and all the laser eyes, they're just hoping and hoping they're right. And sooner or later, they're going to give up hope. And yes. that's how bottoms well, they, happen. They could, they could be forced to give up hope, yeah. right? I mean, they could be leveraged against yeah. the NASDAQ. They could lose their job at Meta. Yeah. There's things that happen where you just can't hold on anymore besides hope. Listen, when you think of the enthusiasm that went on in 2020 or the back half of it in 2021, that's obviously come unwound in 2022, it has to do with the fact zero interest rates. You know, we flooded the zone with fiscal stimulus. People had cash. They had not a whole heck of a lot of things to do. They could believe in false profits on the Internet and that sort of thing. Um, as and they had tremendous market momentum. And you know, the bigger the party, the bigger ha the hangover. All right. Well, speaking of false prophets, and, and I don't mean prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. I mean prophets with a P-H in there. Let's talk about Elon Musk here. Um, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. You know, he closed on the deal um, for Twitter on October 28th. He's fired. It sounds like you know haphazardly half of the employees. I think a lot of they these hired guys hired some back, and then probably fired some more. And the guys chirping in his ear. Yeah. You know, were saying that this company, you know, as uh, you know, dollar per revenue per employee was like yeah. a ridiculous level. But he is the C-suite. They got rid of content moderation. They've fired thousands of employees. They've lost tons of advertisers. So if you're taking away revenue streams, okay, yeah. like there's a chance that he defaults on this debt. And therefore, what's going to happen? If you are a Tesla shareholder, and I've been harping on this for a long time, you better be all in on what he wants to do with Twitter and the price that he paid for it. Because if you're looking at the public market comps, he's overpaid by at least $25 billion. And if you are literally in on this thing, okay, you're in on the Tesla, you're a Tesla shareholder, there's a good chance that the banks, okay, that hold that debt might need to do an equity offering to put collateral against that debt. Okay, and so why is the stock below 200, down 50 percent in the last year? I think it's because of that. I completely agree. That was a long little bit, but that I, was a, that was a bit. I mean, basically, you know, you're you're collateral, you're cross collateralized. No difference than what we just talked about between Twitter and Tesla, and therefore, 
you know, it might not be have anything to do with whether you love the Tesla. I have my Tesla. I love the Tesla. But you know, you're at risk because there's personal leverage there. Well, it's funny. You know, another thing that we, you and I have talked about, and we were together with some folks uh, the other day, and we were talking over some Comos. You, you had a little Sincoro. I had a little Comos. Um, you had some Sincoro, too. I did have some Sincoro. Um, but I, I will say this. It's like, okay, so he is the most followed person on Twitter. He's got 115 million um, followers. There's 330 million, okay, monthly active users, whatever they call daily monetizable active yeah. users, this or whatever, whatever else. So he's got like more than a third of the people there. And he is tweeting some crazy shit. He is tweeting a lot of stuff about who people should vote for. He's urging people to vote for Republicans in Congress, whether you're Republican or not. I go back to, Tesla, okay? Who are the people that believe in electric vehicles? They're people who believe in climate change, okay? These are not these alt-right libertarian like techno bros like Elon here, okay? So he's alienating on Twitter. He's tweeting all day long a lot of crazy shit and he's alienating Tesla owners and and Tesla the next owner to me. So like explain that to me as a it's, Tesla it's, owner. As a Tesla owner, I don't I don't. I, I like my car. I don't. Re, I didn't buy it because of Elon Musk. I bought it because it was a sustainable car that was great. Separately, am I worried? I'm not really worried about the operations of Tesla. That he's the Tesla CEO. He's the chairman of SpaceX. He's the CEO of, of Twitter. Doesn't bother me that much. Well, would, would it bother you if you were a Tesla shareholder? It would bother me if I was a Tesla okay, shareholder. So let's separate those because two theoretically, yeah. So as as a shareholder of SpaceX, Twitter, or Tesla, I'd be bothered by. The antics, right? The you know, so I'm um, you know, I'm buying a platform, having a mega megaphone, using that megaphone to make political commentary. At the same time, I'm trying to run three businesses. They're all very complex. Two are very capital intensive. One is under earnings pressure because of a debt load, and you know, it doesn't feel like. You know, in a time where you could see a recession, or you might be in a recession already, or you might see, um, you know, a lot of consumer pressure that would affect advertising, luxury, discretionary spending, all the things that he's reliant on, as well as cheap capital from people who are fanboys. That's going to be the issue. So, the, if he loses fanboys be, and therefore drives up his cost of capital, that affects all three businesses, and that that creates the beginning of what, what you're kind of outlining of his death, death spiral. Well, listen, I, I mean, I think we've seen peak Musk. I, I just do, and I've said this on this podcast probably a million times. I mean, never in my 25 year career have you seen a cult leader of a company, okay, um, and and maybe the stock becomes a cult stock. I've never not seen them unwound. You know, I've never seen that not. It just hasn't happened here. And so I don't know why he would be different. I get it why people think he's brilliant. I'm willing to concede that. But this might be just a bridge too far because from a personal finance standpoint, you know, he had to sell a lot of Tesla stock over the last year. He's probably had to pledge a lot. Does he have to disclose the leverage against the Tesla stock? Well, it's funny. He has not disclosed what he sold recently. So people are thinking that he actually didn't sell stock. He had disclosed in the spring when he sold stock. Stock. And so I don't know what leverage is. I do know that I think named officers have to disclose leverage, right? You would think so because you know he he's basically pledged his stock. There's got to be margin loans all over the place to put that equity up here. The way the stock is being sold over the last couple of days, you know, leads me to believe that someone else is selling selling stock. He's a 15 percent holder of the shares um, of Tesla, but uh, you know, again, like th this is not about Tesla. I mean, again, I don't uh, their car.
cars, you know, I've been in a lot of those lower end ones. They 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 feel like Honda Civic. I mean, they they really do. They're they're yeah. absolutely nothing special, and they rattle a lot, and they feel cheaply made. And I hope you really love <laughs> your Model Y or whatever you have, or what, what is the one that you have the, one have with the, the wing doors, the X. Okay. The X. And remember the other night we were talking about this, like how juvenile is. So his cars are the Model S, the Model Three, which is a reverse E, yes. the Model X, and the Model Y. Sexy. Okay. Yes. He's got this fascination with 69. Okay. Yep. This 420. This reeks of a guy who, A, had never smoked a bone and had never been boned before in his life. So I'll just leave it at that. All right. And then just just in general here, I, I think Amanda's going to be like, we got to cut that. We got to cut that. <laughs> um, but in general here, no, we're going to leave that. Um, you know, I just look at what's going on with him and I look at Twitter and I say to myself, you could say, okay, you want to vote with your wallet, you can sell your Tesla shares. Well, I don't know Tesla yeah. shares. You could say to me, okay, yeah. I just like the but, sustainable and, car. And, and, and I don't, exactly. I don't but, care. What but, uh, but I also think, I assume that there's going to be some disclosure of leverage, right? And I know that it, whether you're, you know, whether you're Aubrey McClendon back in the Chesapeake days yeah. or Elon Musk today, you know, there's been some rules where you have to disclose leverage. And if I owned a company, if I was an equity shareholder of a company where the CEO has significant leverage against his shares and he owns 20% of the company, and a lot of that's based on the performance of a company in um, social media from trying to own a car company. Yeah. That would seem like a crazy risk that'd be a little bit too far. It seems like, uh, listen, I, I've said this. If you want to give me the over-under of two years, uh, whether Elon's going to be the CEO of Tesla, I've taken the under. I just don't know. Sooner or later, there's going to be shareholder suits against them, lots of them. There's going to be, there's first of all, there's current um, investigations into the company as it relates to their full self-drive, and we know that. That's been yep. disclosed. Okay, so there's numerous ones there. Um, he might have major capital issues if, if the capital markets go lower, if interest rates Stay higher. If Twitter were to default on some of their debt covenants, yes. okay. If Tesla's, um, you know, access to rare earth materials, so they can make, you know, these batteries, yes. they're making them in China. Who knows what's going to happen with China? You know, if China were to um, attack Taiwan or, or in some way, shape, or form, yeah. blockade them or do something like that, will Tesla be able to manufacture? In China and and really tap into a very important market as it relates to demand for well, them consumer demand as well as production. I, 100%. I I agree. So it's it's China's important, very important on two dimensions for him. And this is where I kind of get caught up. And we're spending a lot more time, I think, than our producers wanted us on this topic. But where I get caught up is like the days before he was going to close on the Twitter deal. You remember that that email or that Twitter thread that he put out there that he's doing this for humanity. He thinks yeah. free speech is so important. He loves us and this and that, or whatever. Well, if he loves us and he loves free speech, why is he cozying up to the most authoritarian government on the planet, which is China, so that he has, again, access yeah. to those rare materials, access to the production, and access to those consumer markets? It just doesn't fly with me. And then when you think about how did he finance this deal for Twitter? Well, he took all this money from the Saudis. I don't know if you know that, but but yep. you know we're not we're they're kind of persona non grata <laughs> with us right now. You know what I mean? Um, he. The fact that all of these banks who were so desperate to do business with him, whether it be yeah. for SpaceX, they gave him these $13 billion that they committed to in the debt. You know, By the time they went to do the deal, why I thought maybe they had an out on this was that he spent the last six months denigrating the product, the service, the company, which lowered the value of the company that they had committed debt to exactly. in the spring. So, to me, I thought they'd have an out. Supposedly, like... 
opening bid for that debt, okay, is yes. like at best fifty cents on the dollar. That so, makes sense. So yeah. the banks are going to literally wear you know billions of dollars of losses, and they deserve it, okay. And all these equity people who rolled their stock. If this bid did not exist from Elon Musk, okay, this stock would have a two, it would have been in the 20s. It would have have been in the 20s. And the fact that Jack Dorsey, the co-founder of this company, who was a two-time CEO, had a 2.5% stake in Twitter, and he rolled it into the deal at 54.20, at $44 billion, it makes you think... How fucking smart are some of these guys? I mean, like, like, and well, I don't I mean, mean smart. You, you, I mean, saw, you saw that. You saw the back and forth via text. You saw the back and forth via DM. Um, you know, they're just like everybody else. <laughs> dumb like us. All right, there's the title right there. Right dumb there. like us. Um, Correlation. I, I, but Dan listen, Elon. This thing is not done, Rick. I just no. I just, this is going to be exciting. The reason why this is all over the financial media is this is an exciting soap opera playing out. That could end terribly, and I'm sure the media would like to see you know this uh, restabilization and a ballast of subscriber uh, f- uh, fee growth isn't the story anyone's playing for now. They're they're playing for how does this all correlate with the most exciting car company in the last hundred years, the most exciting space company yeah. in the history of time, and the and the craziest social media platform that probably got in and got rid of a president. Um, in the last time. And now all of a sudden they're all run by one guy who's the richest man in the world and looks, likes to make dick jokes. I mean, it's, it's, it, you couldn't, you couldn't have scripted it better. He likes poop jokes and dick jokes. I mean, again, I'm juvenile. Um, let's just, all right, should we move on from Elon? Sure. We should move on from Elon. Um, let's talk about a couple headlines. This morning I tweeted this out and I thought it was kind of interesting because yep. I'm like, you know, I'm doing my, my morning reading here and I'm going over a lot of different sites, CNBC, Bloomberg, uh, FactSet. I spent a lot of time on there. Um, the information, which yep. I like too. And I just saw a bunch of headlines. Here was one. Okay. Tesla stock has dropped more than 35% since Elon first said he'd buy Twitter. Carvana stock has dropped 97% as Outlook darkens for used vehicle market. Crypto billionaires brawl triggers contagion fears in markets. And then this one here. And this was going to be one that I really want to focus on. Nine public tech companies is from the information worth yeah. less than what they VCs originally invested. And I see all those headlines as a monolith. And I say to myself, it's kind of the beginning of the end game when you think about how many stocks in the market are down 70, 80, 90%, how many cryptos have lost most of their value. I mean, the list goes on and on. You know what I mean? As far as the air that's come out of SPAC market, that's come out of uh, you know the IPO yeah. market is dead. I mean, you need to start seeing headlines like this. And, and I guess with my tweet, I was like, we're kind of starting the end game of the bear market, and it probably takes maybe one, two, you know, maybe tops three quarters, but you'll see it as a rounding bottom a little bit. Um, and, and again, you need to see capitulation. So when you see in your market, in the private markets, a headline like that from the information, what does that signal to you? Well, I, I, I don't think I don't think we're rounding the bottom. We might be rounding the bottom. It might be a wide turn. Though. Yeah, well, creating so, a round so, bottom so, takes a while. Yeah. Really hard to be worse than you know a lot of these companies, which were everyday names of Rackspace and Compass and Oscar, being you know less than fifty percent of what they raised in venture money in this story. And you know we're seeing a lot of companies being valued at, at less than what they raised. You know you're seeing the down rounds, the recaps occurring, um, and all the venture capitalists, whether they tell you or not, are all working through um, some companies they have which hit a rough patch for one reason or another. But you know it's time to work through those. I think the, the key thing that will determine if it's one quarter or five quarters is what happens to the consumer, right? Does, th- there's two things I think people are most worried about. 
what's the contagion of unemployment? And what does that mean for consumer confidence? So where's consumer confidence today? It seems to be eroding things, whether it's crypto eroding it, whether it's your, your next door neighbor got laid off from Meta, whatever those things are that are eroding consumer confidence. And we see it a little bit. I like to look at um, the vacation rentals, uh, you know, Airbnb particularly, but even anything um, in the hospitality space is discre- consumer discretionary, uh, ultimate discretionary almost. And what does that mean? And they're still holding up, but everybody's quite scared there. And then the second piece is, is the Fed going to overcorrect, right? So they, they, they've given every, uh, every signal that they're going to overcorrect. They're up, you know, 550 basis points in the last six months. It takes six months to have that flow through. So they haven't even seen the results of the corrections they made in, in um, March and April. And therefore, the, but at the same time, they're full steam ahead. So are those two things, a weaker consumer, and we all know consumer is about two thirds of the economy. So therefore, it can control the economy. Um, an enterprise which is slowing down spending, you know, key way they've slowed down spending, especially in the tech markets, is firing people. And then a Fed, which might continue to raise interest rates, which for the first time in a half a generation is going to put pressure on the earnings line through the interest expense line. You know, there, there, you could see, um, you know, the next step down of a renormalization in the first half of next year. So it's, it's, I, it doesn't seem like there's clear sailing once we hit the bottom to bounce off of. You can make, and this is before your your favorite uh, mega threats of Taiwan or or nuclear Russia or whatever those things yeah. may be. That you know, there, the, you have to see what's really going to happen. And I think is whether you're in the public market investor or a private market investor, you're kind of thinking eyes wide open. I'm not going to you know tie my feet to anything. I want to be able to be flexible. I want to be able to um, you know maintain my growth and have enough capital to get to 2024 when. And it does feel like you know we'll be through the worst of it. Yeah, so that seems like it's going to be a big theme. A lot of your companies um, had made cuts early. Um, the economy uh, provided very little visibility. Um, you know, there's a whole host of geopolitical things that have come up. Um, and so again, you're going to keep reevaluating kind of where you are and what your runway is. Yeah, and we don't know what the earnings line is. I mean, you still have had a relatively healthy economy that all of these companies were selling into. And, you know, sometimes startups have more volatility on the revenue line than larger companies. And therefore, you know, we're still maybe budgeting to a pretty healthy economy. And a step down, especially in consumer, especially in consumer discretionary, can have a meaningful impact. Yeah, I, I guess that was probably a big theme of Q3 earnings that we just pretty much are getting done with here is that, you know, there was a lot of fear about the health of the consumer, even after they've been propped up through, you know, the yeah. pandemic, savings rates were kind of high. But we also saw consumer credit going much higher here. Now that we're seeing unemployment sort of tick up just a little bit, I think to yeah. your point, the last part of my takeaway from the earnings season was also that enterprise was starting to see a bit of a slowdown. And yeah. so to me, you know, that has been something that's been weighing on public valuations. And I think they're likely to come out of it before private valuations. And, but, and we also saw, you know, going back to when we started talking about this a year ago, yeah. that the enterprises were more concerned about the economy than the consumer was. Yeah. A very rare um, to see this. And this has been enterprises have been more concerned. That's why the layoff started before consumer spending started, yeah. start, uh, stopped. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's uh, although the enterprise is leading the cons- leading the the tightening, um, it eventually gets to the consumer, and that's the bigger piece of the pie. Yeah, well, that's going to play out over the next few months. We covered a lot of ground today. Really appreciate you being here in studio. So, everybody, stick around. I have Jake Wood, CEO, founder of Groundswell, and Joe Marchese. He is the build partner of at Human Ventures. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep, and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Robotty program here, and I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash OK. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. I have a special guest here. His name is Jake Wood. He is the founder and CEO of Groundswell, a philanthropy as a service company. But he's actually a lot more than that. Um, and we're going to get into all that. Jake, welcome to OK Computer. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. All right. Now, like many of our fine guests on this podcast, they have been introduced to me from my good friend, Joe Marchese, who is also here Partner at Human Ventures, you know him, you love him, backed by popular demand. And, you know, I just really, we've been wanting to do this podcast for a while. Like I said, I met Jake, I think a couple years ago, before you founded Groundswell, you were the founder and I think CEO at the time of Team Rubicon. I want to talk a lot about that. You're in town from LA this week in New York because you have Team Rubicon's huge gala. I went last year. It's a phenomenal event. You guys raise a ton of money for a great cause. get into all of that. Joe, you've been involved. You know Jake from Team Rubicon, correct? Yes, we met we met in the early days of Team Rubicon. In in Lima, Peru, of all places. <laughs> in Lima, Peru. As one does. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Joe, Joe obviously serves in many ways trying to help others here. Let, let's let's take a step back here, Jake, because you know, I, I remember reading this profile of you in the New York Times uh, last year, and it's pretty fascinating. You kind of it's got like a like force gump thing to him a little bit. Have you ever has anyone used that expression I before? Know, I've never really literally don't even know where that's going. Well, I mean, like literally, you can't run. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a good runner. Well, well, weren't you a tight end for the Wisconsin Badgers? I was an offensive lineman. Oh, okay, fine. You really can't run. Why <laughs> did I think you were a tight end? He's thinned up because friend. I've lost 50 pounds since then. <laughs> All right, so, so talk to us a little bit because again, the Forrest Gump thing is this: is like you played football in the Big Ten at Wisconsin, you joined the Marines, you served, um, you came out of that, you learned a whole host of things about service in general. You started Team. Rubicon, and, and and again, now now you are a fintech entrepreneur. 
So, yeah, so you're, so you're yeah. saying my, Team Rubicon's my Bubba Gump shrimp? Is that, yeah, is wait, that where does that make me goes? Lieutenant Dan? <laughs> I don't know. Who am I? <laughs> well, we're, we're going to get in deeper right. that. Um, no, but talk to us a little bit about, I mean, like your days playing football in the Big Ten. What was that like? And, and when were you there? Yeah, so I played... Uh, I played football for the Badgers from 2001 to 2005. Um, so it just, I mean, it was an amazing experience. I had the opportunity to go and play for Coach Alvarez, Hall of Fame football coach, really pretty incredible uh, leader, mentor, you know, built an incredible uh, organizational culture up there at Wisconsin, which was fun. I think has paid dividends for me 20 years later. We were good at football back then. We didn't make the Rose Bowl. I got cheated out of it my senior year um, by Michigan State. But it was an, it was an awesome experience, man. Those hoodlums at Michigan State. Yeah, exactly. No, I, it must. Is it hard for you? I mean, Wisconsin football is falling on hard times a little bit here. It's kind of like the armpit of the big. The oh big come on, right it's now. not no, quite that. Come not, on. Actually, the, the 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 interim head coach yeah. it was my old teammate. Oh, um, I, I know him extraordinarily well. Fair enough. Um, so, to talk to us a little bit about again your service. Uh, you joined the Marines, um, and so you were playing football 01 to 05. Were yep. you ROTC at Wisconsin, or how, how did you- no? So I. Yeah, so I, I was a, a you know full athletic scholarship there. You know, there's really no time for ROTC if you're if you're playing football. It's 40 hours a week. But obviously, 9/11 happened my freshman year. That was pretty formative. And uh, you know, right before then, my senior year, Pat Tillman was killed in Afghanistan. You know, an old uh, pr- former professional football player. And I think that was a very kind of like a moment of reckoning for me, where I just decided, hey, it was very clear I was not going to make it in the NFL. I wasn't even going to get a chance. I wasn't ready to go into the corporate world. And I decided, all right, hey, we're at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm going to go do my part. And so I enlisted in the Marine Corps right after my last game. And Yeah. So how long did you serve uh, and, and how long were you overseas? So I was in the Marine Corps from 05 to 09. So four years, kind of a standard enlistment. And uh, the entire time I was in, I was either training for or deployed to combat. So I did a tour in Iraq in 2007 part of the surge, and then uh, a tour in Afghanistan a year later in Afghanistan's southern Helmand Valley. Yeah, so when you got out of the Marines, you, you still felt a need to serve. And uh, again, I mean, a lot of guys can go into these programs where, I, I listen, you know, coming from finance, you know, investment banks, they'd love hiring veterans, the sort of the discipline. And, you know, you know, think about, I, I used to sit on a trading desk, and we had a couple former, one was a naval aviator. I mean, you know, when you think about, like, these guys tweaking out about a position that's going against them or whatever, you know, and, and, and the sort of situations that you guys have been, what you've been trained for, it's truly astounding. I mean, there's no shortage of opportunities in the corporate world for, you know, people like you coming out of the service. What did you choose to do? Well, I mean, listen, that's what I thought I was going to do was go, you know, get on a trading desk next to you. Or actually, what I really wanted to do was, you know, be an entrepreneur. It was kind of the height of you know, Silicon Valley was kind of like rising, you know, in 09, you know, Twitter, Facebook, all of these companies were really uh, launching into the stratosphere. And, you know, I, I knew I couldn't fly up to San Francisco and knock on Jack Dorsey's door and be like, hey, I'm a Marine sniper. You should totally hire me. You know, there's just that nothing marketable. I don't know. That might have worked. Given that, have worked. That, that, that exact line. He's, he's, made, he's, made, he's made crazier decisions recently. You know, the plan was to go get my MBA and go do the corporate thing. That plan got hijacked, uh, you know, shortly after it was hatched because uh, earthquake hit Haiti, uh, you know, got a wild hair up my ass and uh, decided I wanted to help. And and that was really the the genesis of Team Rubicon was that event. We we went down there. We took some veterans and doctors. We were helping out after that earthquake. And then, you know, it just really snowballed from there. And, you know, fast forward 12 years, that organization that started with eight random people is an organization with 150,000 people across the globe uh, responding to hundreds and 
you know, over a thousand disasters since inception. When you started Team Rubicon, did you really think it was going to kind of be a one-off sort of situation here? We have this massive earthquake, this thing in the Western Hemisphere, and you thought I could, given my you know knowledge and my ability to kind of mobilize some yeah. some friends who are like very capable. Did you did you have the the the, the idea of, of this massive organization that you built? When we first said, hey, let's go to Haiti, it was, we're going to go down there a couple weeks, we're going to come back, it's going to be a story we tell at bars. Um, and, you know, Joe and I, Joe's on the board, and uh, it's how we've really gotten to know each other well. Uh, we just had a board meeting, our annual board meeting yesterday here in New York, and um, to see where the organization is, you know, it'll raise $52 million this year. It's got 160,000 volunteers this year to date. We've already run 111 disaster and humanitarian operations. That was never the intent. And even, even when we got back and, you know, from Haiti and said, okay, hey, let's, let's kind of keep going with this. I thought the upper limit of what it could accomplish was like a million dollars a year. So it's funny. I haven't sat, you know, through as you've told that story in person again in a long time. But if if now after watching Groundswell come, which I know we'll get to, isn't that the story of an entrepreneur? Like 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 it never ends what you started as. You normally start small. You see a problem that you think you have a unique ability to solve, right? And like we ask every founder that comes through Human, why now? Why you? Right? Because we're that early. I mean, look the why now? Why you? In the Team Rubicon founding Haiti earthquake special skill set trained by the U.S. government to do certain things in moments of crisis. So, and then it snowballs into a giant organization. As a matter of fact, most people who start with a plan, we're going to be a massive organization, don't go there, right? It's too complicated. There's too many things that are going to change. And so, like, when you hear it told that way, if, if you just removed that you knew it was going to end up being a nonprofit, um, you would sound like a, a consummate startup story. One of the things I've been hearing a lot more recently is, you know, everybody knows about product market fit, but everybody now is talking a lot more about founder market fit. It, which is exactly what you're talking about. And I, yeah, I think it was a lot of right place, right time, right person for starting a, a challenger organization in the disaster space. You know, and I think same thing with Groundswell, right? They, you know, there was a lot of uh, expertise that was developed building a nonprofit through some challenging economic times, and you know, now pivoting into making philanthropy more effective, more efficient. Uh, more egalitarian, um, you know, the timing is right. You know, it's interesting. We had Jason Kander, um, who just wrote this book, Invisible Storm, and he was on the pod recently. And it's just pretty fascinating. I think he joined the service at a similar time um, that you did. He served in Afghanistan. And in reading his book, it, it's pretty fascinating about just the challenges. You know, he came out, he was in law school, you know, and then went to, you know, serve in Afghanistan. The story is about just about PTSD and how he's dealing with it, not even, you know, some of the worst case scenarios, but just how it's kind of, you know, infected his life. How has just the experience over there just, you know, overall been for you as you think about building nonprofits, as you think about building organizations? I assume you're in touch with a lot of veterans and and, and this sort of um, infrastructure really helps them, I think, deal with with some of those, um, the the aftermath of serving over there? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess maybe before answering that, zooming out for the listeners that aren't familiar with Team Rubicon, um, you know, the organization basically recruits, trains, and deploys military veterans for disaster response. So we're taking, you know, men and women who've served often or primarily from Iraq and Afghanistan, but all the way back to Vietnam, even some Korean War vets. And those guys are old, but they are, they're, they're wily. Um, and, uh, you know, we, as, as Joe mentioned, we repurpose the skills that the military gave them to, you know, bring order to the chaos of these post-disaster situations. Um, and I think what you're referring to, Dan, is this kind of this unintended consequence of that mission that we discovered was 
these veterans found this renewed sense of purpose that was really powerful. Uh, one of the things my wife likes to joke about, you know, she's like, Jake, you never actually got out of the Marine Corps because, you know, I, I, I started Team, Rub- Team Rubicon 60 days after the Marine Corps. So I never really had that hard transition where I found myself lacking purpose because I just started pouring it into Team Rubicon. Now, I can't say it was without challenges. I, I lost friends to suicide. My sniper partner committed suicide, you know, uh, two years after I got out. And, you know, those were tragedies. My, my unit, you know, kind of my, the whole battalion that I served with has lost more men to suicide than we did in combat. And we served during the two deadliest years of the war. So we lost a lot of Marines in combat. And yet we've lost more coming back. And I think maybe pull that thread just a little bit further. I think one of the things, as you mentioned, post-traumatic stress, PTSD, I think it's a very misunderstood dilemma. I think it's overdiagnosed. And I think what we often do is conflate PTSD with moral injury. You know, the spiritual moral injury that people suffer in war, you're doing horrible things. You're seeing horrible things. That's not necessarily the same as having kind of a chemical imbalance of, of PTSD. And you, you, you have to approach them differently. I think purpose is a universal human need. And certainly, you know, for someone coming back from war, I think that's exacerbated. And I think Team Rubicon has helped there. Yeah, no, well, that's great. I would love to get to, to kind of, Joe, how you got involved in it. You guys just mentioned that you met in Lima, Peru. So it was during, um, I guess, a disaster relief no, situation? No, actually, it was, um, it was kind a tech of a, conference. It was a tech, it was a tech <laughs> really? for good, tech for change. Um, uh, Here, let's start that over again. No, it's okay. It's because it's, it's, there, there's some relevancy here, which is like, so, so. When I first met Jake, um, uh, we were at a Tech for Good conference, and we we're talking about how people can can participate, get engaged. And that Team Rubicon was just getting started. He was er- early days of Team Rubicon. I met Jake, obviously dynamic person. Um, we became friends, and we were friends for a long time. I didn't join the board for for I don't know, years, five after. or six years, probably yeah, five yeah. or six years after that. But then one day here in New York, we were sitting for breakfast, and he told me that part of the story. It wasn't just the disaster relief; it was the resiliency that it brings into people here in the U.S. um, and veterans when they come home. And it's that dual purpose of the organization that gave me, like, it just kind of lit a fire for me. And that became something that I was very passionate about. Um, Having never served, I'd always been shy about, I don't want to be on the board of a nonprofit that's veteran-led because I haven't served. And it was Jake coming around saying, no, we need need people who are storytellers, marketers, people who have been here. But but I think the, the interesting part, when you talk about purpose, there's also a broader threat even beyond the veterans like that we we think of a lot right now, which is Derek Thompson has these great talks from the Atlantic about an, an abundance mindset. So our society might end up in abundance mindset, but like we need purpose for people, right? And and people participating in civic duty, people volunteering, people helping their neighbors, going across political lines, that kind of purpose economy was a big deal for me. And almost as much as the disaster relief, as, as what, what Team Rubicon does on the worst days, what are they doing on all the other days? And so that was when I got hooked. I was five years into Team Rubicon, uh, joined the board, and then, and, and then we'll start to get into what I saw in Jake, which was I saw board meetings run better than you know $100 million funded startups. I mean, the, the corporate partnerships, the, the discipline and raising money, the 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 metrics they were measuring people by managing a hundred thousand person volunteer force yeah. uh, in the U.S. was just uh, 
astounding. And and so then it came to a point where I said, if you ever start anything, I'm not recruiting you out of a nonprofit. I'll make that very clear on this. Uh, other than other than they did get art, so then they well, got that, that, I, we got to talk yeah, about we Art Crew. Yeah, we upgraded CEO, absolute <laughs> stud, former Top Gun pilot, right? Yeah. And I yeah. mean, so he took over the reins, and I think that's about the time where you and I met because you were just starting. You guys were starting Groundswell. You were what the executive chairman. You know, Art is a fascinating guy. It sounds like it was time, right? Um, you kind of did phase one yeah. here, and I mean, I I, I first met Art. Uh, we got put in touch by mutual friends. I wasn't looking for, you know, to add a senior executive to the team. But I, I walked away from that meeting and I just said to myself, like, I'm going to hire that guy yeah. one day. And, you know, uh, about a year later, I called him up. He was working for uh, Northrop Grumman or Raytheon or something like that, you know, probably selling <laughs> missile defense systems. And I said, <laughs> said hey, man, you, you're sick of selling missiles to Saudi Arabia. You want to go do something more <laughs> meaningful? And he said, he said, yes. Um, so he came on board as my COO. And, you know, I was lucky to have him as a, as a, as a partner for five years. And it was just time. Yeah. You know, it was time five years later for me to, to step away and do something else. So how can people who are listening to this now um, participate? How, how can they just donate? Um, what are some of the things they can do for Team Rubicon? Yeah, I mean, it's really very simple. So, you know, go to our website, uh, teamrubiconusa.org. Um, and, and one thing that I would I failed to mention earlier, it's not exclusively military veterans that are involved as volunteers of our organization. We've got you know, 25, 30% of our volunteers are, you know, have not worn the uniform and they're incredibly valuable to the mission you know, Joe mentioned, uh, you know, building this resilience. How do you, how do you make our society uh, more capable, more outward thinking, less uh, insular, less, you know, thinking about, Hey, what's in it for me? And so we'll take anybody that wants to serve and we'll, we'll give them the skills that they, that they need uh, a mission that's meaningful. We'll keep them safe um, and, uh, and really show them how to have impact. So, you know, whether it's donating your, your time or your money, yeah, we'll put it to good use. All right, people, let's do that um, in support of Team Rubicon. Okay, Joe. So again, you just said that you didn't want to recruit him out of this, like really well-functioning dual purpose nonprofit, but you kind of did. Or what did you say to him? You said, whenever you're ready to do something in the private sector, the literal line was was, if you want to start an ice cream stand, I will back the ice cream stand. I really was hoping he didn't want to do that because that would have been harder to explain to the LPs at Human. Um, <laughs> but I was like, whatever it is, I'm in. And and I just remember it was it was probably six months of thinking through or, or, or just bouncing things around as you yeah. were getting ready to get art art ready for the chair. Um, and uh, yeah, and then and then one day you called me and you're like, okay, I found the thing that I can't sleep because I'm thinking about it. Yeah. You're, I find the thing that keeps me awake, and it's it was this idea of corporate philanthropy. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, I was so lucky to have guys like Joe on the board. Um, you know, I don't call many people that are my same age, my same vintage, you know, mentors, but uh, Joe was an incredible mentor. And so just the opportunity to, to start something with Joe was exciting. You know, Joe's a seasoned entrepreneur. He's done this a lot of times. And I was confident that I could flip over to that for-profit venture-backed side and be successful again, but you always you always kind of wonder like, hey, can I catch lightning in a, in the bottle twice? Um, but you know, you can kind of create unfair advantages when you partner up with guys like Joe. And I'm a big believer in creating unfair advantages. So um, 
yeah, was lucky to do so that. So it sounds like the, that your first idea, um, the tequila, wasn't particularly great. And he already had, he already had that, so I just want to be really clear on that. So Comos won out on that one. Okay. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. We already had that. Richard Betts, uh, you know, I don't know that he could be Jake at a lot of uh, physical contests, but uh, in crafting uh, world-class tequila. Not, not that you'll be lacking this this week in New York City here, but, um, you know, every guest of OK Computer and on the tape gets a bottle of Comos Ooh, tequila right. here. So, so you're going to have a little bit of that. All right, but talk to us. What like what is philanthropy as a service? Do you do you do recognize the fact that that that's probably a, a new concept to a lot of people? Yeah. So I let me I guess maybe back up and share the the problem that I observed. So you know in ten ten years running Team Rubicon, I raised three hundred and fifty million dollars in philanthropy. Right. So a lot of money. And I, I I realized kind of two things. One, rich people have access to tools for their giving that average people don't. I always found that was unfair, and I feel like in today's age that that just didn't seem logical anymore. Second thing was companies think they're good at giving away money and they actually suck at it. So you have a lot of companies out there giving away a lot of billions and billions of dollars of philanthropy a year. They think they're good at it. They're not. They think that they're driving business outcomes with it. They're not. They think they're inspiring their employees. They're not. And so having seen that, I just felt like there was a better way. We create a groundswell with the mission of democratizing philanthropy. What that means for us is making, building the world's best, most modern donor-advised fund, making it available to anyone uh, in the most cost-effective way. And then what we've done is we've packaged that as a platform that we sell to companies that allows them to roll these personal giving accounts out to employees. They're tax-advantaged like an HSA or 401k. And those companies then can give or match money into it. So basically decentralizing their corporate philanthropy, empowering their employees to give it away to what matters most to them. And so what they're really doing is they're they're empowering their people. They're investing in the diversity of their people because each of their employees has a different perspective on what matters most in the world. They're providing an innovative and unique benefit that's really, you know, Joe kind of really leaned into this, this concept of adding, you know, making philanthropy a component of your compensation, right? Subsidizing the philanthropy that people are already doing. So it's, it was, it's been powerful. It's, I think, the going back to timing, the timing's right. Um, you know, the world has changed. Stakeholders at companies expect their companies to give back, to align, to have a, a values alignment. You know, they expect their CEOs to speak or act on every social issue that arises. And like that last thing, that's pretty unsustainable. Like that's a minefield for executives. Well, Joe, as an investor and you know a VC, and you hear a lot of pitches. What was attractive about this idea? What did you think that that Jake's idea was kind of disintermediating? Well, one uh, one where, where what he said, I'll say it in a uh, my simplified way of uh, good companies or take something rich people have and then use tech to make it available to everybody, right? Like rich people have private drivers, Uber is tech. Everyone has a private driver. Rich people have summer homes, Airbnb. Anyone could have a summer home for a week. Why can't everybody have a donor advised fund? So that's one component. But like, you know, one thing we look at at human is can we find a consensus space? So there's lots of people who think donor advised funds should be for everybody. Um, but can you have a counter consensus approach? And the, that was the other part of the coin, which is Jake has raised hundreds of millions of dollars for charity. And he can go through the stats more. But corporate giving is wildly inefficient. And it's the largest source of it. And at the same time, corporations are looking to engage their employees more. They're like, so could you use the fintech rails? 
to solve this problem and have this pool of money not coming from consumers because consumers aren't – while consumers all would like a donor-advised fund, like the normal person isn't looking for new ways to give away money. Corporations are looking for new ways to give away money. So that was that last little unlock, uh, and, and it got really exciting. I mean, take that and then, like we talked about, uh, why you, why now? You could have a charity that is, we support kittens, and you'll have 5% of your workforce that hates that charity. I don't know why, but like you will. And so the ability to decentralize, not in a uh, blockchain way, but literally decentralize corporate philanthropy. So instead of Corporation X giving away money to the Boys and Girls Club, Dan Nathan gives away money to the Boys and Girls Club of Albany, right? And imagine your entire employee base doing that. And so that became just wildly exciting and something that was so clear to see, but it was something that evolved over time. What, what were some of, Jake, some of the companies that just got it right out of the gate and, and just and, and what's some of the feedback that you're getting both from the company who's providing this as a service and then some of the employees who are, it's probably brand new to them, this concept. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So we came in a beta um, about four or five months ago. You know, we've signed up a bunch of companies. There's a one interesting thing is that there have there are companies out there, software companies that have solutions for employee giving. Frankly, the, the solutions are quite archaic. The the platforms themselves are clunky, um, and we and we've really well what those what those platforms have done is automate a process, right? What we've thought about is how do we reimagine what the process should be. So like you know Henry Ford said, you know if I asked people what they wanted, I would have given yeah you know, the answer I would have gotten was faster horses. Instead, I gave them the Model T. We're not looking to build faster horses. We're looking to build the Model T, and we've done that. Um, and so one of the things about these legacy providers is they're they're I mean they're not on prem, but they're like from that era, right? And huge account minimums. They can only really service Fortune 500 companies. So, first and foremost, we've built a really lean platform, you know, with the most modern uh, architecture, which allows us to go down market and easily service a, a mid-market or SMB customer, which is exciting because what happens is, I'll, I'll use one community that I, I, you're familiar with, investment management firms, right? Hedge funds, PE, you know, the largest investment management firms out there, they use these legacy providers. Goldman Sachs uses these legacy providers. These smaller shops, 100 employees, they've never been able to afford it. It never made sense to spend $50,000 on a platform uh, to do employee giving when you're only giving away $100,000 a year. We can, we can get those companies and bring them up to parity in their benefits offering immediately at a lower price point. So that's been kind of an exciting thing. The other thing, I, you know, I mentioned we've reimagined what the process looks like. Because we've built this with a donor advised fund at the center of what we do, we've actually created this, this layer of privacy right? Other platforms, the, the employee has to disclose to their employer where they gave in order to get a match. That's fine if it's like the local animal shelter and it's pretty benign. If it's Planned Parenthood, yeah. after a really controversial decision around Roe v. Wade, you may not do that if the woman in HR processing it is a devout Catholic. Yeah. You know, not to pick on Catholics, right? Yeah. But and you can think about that from we all we, sides we, of the issue. No Catholics were hurt in the, the recording <laughs> of this podcast. Yeah, and and because you know we we've built this, so all the matches go first into that donor advised fund, and then you you can give it away however you want, as authentically as you want. And by disaggregating it, we've created this really private experience that allows people to again participate more fully as as themselves in protecting that. I'd add to that the you know when Jake talks about there are. And, and we thought about this a lot as, as, as it was starting, as Groundswell was getting off the ground, was uh, 
there are large platforms that have this as a component of what they do. But that's like saying Microsoft had chat as a component of the Microsoft Office suite, and yet there's Slack, right? It, there, there was video. I mean, there was it's Skype before there. It's, it definitely still exists. Yeah. But the but the idea that there is purpose built for one particular thing allows you to make something that is just so much cleaner to use. Like and it's it is a good enough product that a consumer could sign up on their own. I, I have it on my phone right now. I use it for all my giving. It makes it super easy. It's like Venmo for giving. Like yeah. it takes me two seconds to go in and, and give give money to a charity. And then at the end of the year, like just think about it. At the end of the year, I just have one account. Like, do you know everything you gave to over the last two or three years? Is no, it's it, a mess. You literally have to go to your Amex card and like yeah. sort it. I mean, it really is a mess. Yes, um, and is, I, I tracked and, and, and mine in my is, inbox. And this is this is the same problem for someone who's making you know fifty k a year, a hundred k a year, two hundred k a year, like all, all the way up until you have a family office that can keep track of this stuff, which is you know the one percent of the one percent of the one percent. Like you can't do that. So making it easy enough that a consumer says, "Oh wow, this is something I'm going to take with me," but then okay, but where's the funding going to come from? And that's where the corporate. You, you know, it's interesting. In my inbox, um, I have an email from Christy Marchese. How do you? <laughs> oh, Marchese. Um, She's talking about her husband who's running the New York City Marathon oh, this weekend, and you can support his charity that you're raising money for, Haymakers for Hope. And she actually has a link to groundswell.io where you, I mean, again, it makes it really, I think yeah. all of us are kind of like you look at some of those other sites there and, and they're clunky and you don't, they don't look like, like legitimate. And this is really a kind of a platform based um, yeah. sort of thing. And, and, and I, I suppose for you, and, and, and I think Jake and I both know this is, that Joe and Christy are two of the most generous people we know. No They're doubt. helping every organization that they find, um, you know, remotely useful. Um, the to, word to, "no" is not in their yeah. lexicon. <laughs> and, and for you, Joe, like this sort of tool yeah. must no, it's, be pretty. It's, it's amazing. I mean, look the way the way we set this up, and this just kind of you know, this is brand new. There's not even a workflow to support this, and yet it just works anyway. Which is everyone who donates to Haymakers, I'm doing a two x match to their charity. That would take me forever to go to every charity's page, figure out what how they use it. But right now. I just have the money's in the account, and every time someone makes a donation, I just type it in and hit send, and it goes to their charity. I don't have to change anything. Uh, listen, I, and I mean this sincerely. I'm in awe of both of you. Um, I worked when I was in college in Philadelphia in, I think it was like 1993 and 94. I worked for a guy, an ex-Marine. His name was Dick Welsh, and he served two tours in Vietnam, and he was a stockbroker at Prudential Securities, and he used to come out to me, and he'd say, Nathan's, and he was aging at this point. Um, he, he'd say, call me Nathan's. I don't know. He didn't know my first name, and, and he had a $20 bill, and he would go down to that, that croissant place. Place, it was like Oban Pan or something. And get me a sandwich. And get one for yourself. And he goes, I, he used to say this I have the money but I don't have the time. Okay, And he used to say, he felt bad about me going down there and getting the sandwich every day. But this was a guy who was uniquely interested in in, in helping others and doing things. You know, he was a mentor to me. And so, I guess I'm kind of like Dick Welch in a way. When I see people like you guys who are so giving of your time and so immersed in it, and now what you're doing is you're building a platform to help others do it and give back in a way. So, I'm more that guy, you know, like You want us to go get your sandwich? Yeah. So, let's be clear. Did you hear it with that, that sound? Was yeah, my yeah, stomach like, growling a little bit? <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about this founder's journey for you, because I think you kind of Joe Apley said it. You had already been on that journey, but you were doing it for a nonprofit. You set up an organization that you know he was as um, impressed with as he is on, on many of the human companies who are VC backed, that sort of thing. So now, where are you? A couple years on, um, what, you know, talk to us a little bit about you know there you were raising money when you were going to raise money from corporations. They know where it was going and how useful it was yeah. and the dual purpose of it. Now it's like you are a steward of their capital. Right to, to build a business. What's what's that been like? I mean, it's it's been fascinating. One of the one of the things that was 
pretty remarkable as we first went out and started raising money for for Groundswell. Um, you know, I'd have a I'd have a thirty minute phone call with a potential investor by at the end of which he'd say, "All right, hey," uh, and this was just a, a pre seed round uh, raising on a safe note, and they'd say, "Hey, yeah, I'm in for half a million bucks. I'll, I'd love a, a million dollar allocation." And, I'm, and I'd I'd hang up the phone. I'd be like, "Oh my god, are you kidding me? Like I used to have to beg, borrow, and steal somebody to give me a million dollars at Team Rubicon, and this guy doesn't. You know, he's met me for twenty five minutes. He's going to cut a seven figure check. I, it, it was so it was it was honestly it was frustrating." Yeah. How easy it was to raise money. Well, you also have to remember the timing of this was was right was right in the heat, and so a, a pre seed deal at that, and like 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 something that you're going to grow into that people could actually say, okay, I see there's meat on the bones of this because like there was money getting thrown at the craziest things yeah. at that time. I mean, listen, we're not going to get in a macro discussion. Guy Dami's not here. I oh, mean, yeah. like, when you think about the difference of where we are than a few years ago, with interest rates where they were, monetary policy in general, where it was, the risk taking appetite. But again, you know, Joe, this goes back to like you've seen a. A lot of cockamamie ideas come across your desk, yours and Heather's. You know what sure I mean? Um, this is probably one that resonated as an investor because you see the clear opportunity, you see the incumbents right now, you see, you know, like really the change in which this two, like it, it really is a, um, it's a marketplace in a way. Would, would, would you would you consider it that I, way? I mean, I mean, I can make this so simple. You can see who it gives value to and who are the customers. So like, if you can see who it gives value to and who pays for it, I mean, I, I don't, I can't believe that. That's an amazing concept to have to throw out there. But there were companies raising money where you're like, well, who's going to pay for it? Someday we'll figure out someone to pay for it. Like, we've kind of always been stuck on, like, at human, and this is the kind of the other portion of it is we think there's a trillion dollar market in things that make living in this world better rather than, you know, escaping to the metaverse or everything's oh, going to be. Don't get me every, started. Yeah. Well, actually, I want to get you started here oh, because you're kind of an outspoken you know, guy here. Up. No, I, I mean, you know, it, it, it is interesting. And, you know, I, I'll just say this, uh, you know, my dad is a retired lieutenant colonel in the army and I just did this amazing trip with him in the spring. It was one of those honor flights where, oh, yeah. you know, like 150 guys from Syracuse, New York, and they had people like me, like a loved one, go with them to DC for the day. And it's a truly amazing thing. I, you know, all of these individuals, and they're predominantly men from all different walks of life, you know, on that plane together, on that bus in DC, I mean, they're all like a unit again, or however you guys would refer to it. And I found that fascinating. But then if you split them all up and you send them back to their living rooms, and these guys are turning on Fox News, and these guys are turning on CNN, and these guys are turning on MSNBC, it's kind of like that word patriot, when, when I think when you join the Marine it was pretty universal what that meant if you were serving your country. And now it seems like two very different things. And I'm just curious, how has that been for you? Because at Team Rubicon, I'm sure this is there's big political rifts. You know what I mean? I don't mean rifts among the people, but the way the participants think about it, the way the people donating to Team Rubicon, right? Is that is that a thing or no? And I'm not trying to kind of get you to tri trip you up here. And, and you know, yeah, I'm just curious how you no, think listen, about I, it. No, listen, I think uh, the last two years have been really challenging. Um, internally, I think for the first you know nine years of the organization, we were really good at navigating uh, the political environment internally because we have a very diverse uh, volunteer base and uh, along the political spectrum. Um, I say as an organization, it's really you know what we do is very progressive, um, and we have I think very progressive ideals. But you know, the military leans conservative. It's I don't think it's as monolithic politically as people want to paint it, but it certainly leans conservative. The last two years were hard. COVID really divided the organization, you know, between the people that 
thought it was real and the people that thought it was fake. Um, vaccines really divided the, you know, much like the country, but like, yeah. think about where we are right now. So for instance, what percentage of team Rubicon operations are outside the U S Oh, very small. I'd say 5%. Okay. All right. Because I was going to say, like, here's a big issue that's basically on the ballot in the midterms next week is that if the Republicans take the House and the Senate, the risk is that we're going to see much less aid going to Ukraine. Right. right? And, and so, like, think about it. these are these are and, and Ukraine is one of the places Team Rupacon has yeah. has operations yeah, right now. We're boots on the ground in Ukraine. I, and I listen, if that happens, it's a tragedy. I think if people are so myopic to not believe or understand that uh, we're at war with Russia in, you know, it's a, it's in a proxy and, and, you know, we, I think we have to admit that. And we'd much rather be fighting this war in this manner than in the way it could manifest over the next decade. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> well, here's one other question for you because we're in this kind of, um, political season also, right. With the midterms, I mean, donation, the, the mechanisms for donating to political causes, it seems absurd. You could be the most progressive or the most conservative person and you could be getting, you know, like a thousand, literally a thousand communications in a month from your hero. You know what I mean? On that side. And you just want to delete your account. You know what oh I mean? God. Is there an yeah. opportunity as you think about it in grounds? well for political donations and, and how you might help organize that process? You know, we've talked about, you know, in the future, a product extension. You cannot donate to political causes through Groundswell, right? You can't make uh, distributions. They're not tax deductible. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not an authorized yeah. distribution um, from, from a, a, a public charity, which Groundswell is. But um, is there a companion product in, in the future? Uh, potentially. One of the things that we'll know a lot of about our users is the issues that they are really passionate about. I'm literally watching you say that, and I'm picturing when Tammy, who is the chief product officer at Groundswell, hears him say companion <laughs> product, and hears product creep, throwing her phone at something. So, oh, so, yeah, so Tammy, thing. don't worry, I got you, but, I'm here with him, he's, thing, not, Tammy, he's not adding things to the product. Tammy, give me a ring. I mean, to, to me, as someone who actually likes to donate, to, if any of my friends are doing something like you're doing, if you're going somewhere to support some cause, you're going to run some race, I always give, okay? And so, to your point, you know, how do you organize all that? But then on the political side, I do a lot of donations. Some I do bigger. Some I do route two. I'd love it all in one place. I mean, I mean, we, it would take it would take it would take a while to get there on this. I two mean, dashboards. We, that, Tammy, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, two yeah, dashboards. That's yeah, all I need. Yeah, okay. Let's. I mean, if if we would have to have an entire another podcast on the fact that money isn't the problem in politics, it, it is the problem, oh, and it isn't it's a huge like, problem. It, it, yeah. well, but I'm saying like it isn't the problem in that they're not winning or losing because you didn't donate that extra thousand dollars so that they could buy more media that's useless for well, the fourteen. Well, it's all that dark. Well, I, I, think, I think the one of the real issues in politics. Oh, there's a lot, but after we cover the politics, can we cover what are the right religions and why? Because I want to make sure we touch on everything here. Yeah. No, I, I think I think I think one of the issues is people. They only care about these federal elections, right? And people just really fail to understand the power of local politics and help. And, you know, helping people sift through how to get the right local leaders elected. I think there's a powerful opportunity there. Whether it's something, you know, no, I mean it is the incentives. You think about our people in 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 the House of Representatives. They literally have to run every two years. It's a it's a it's a nonstop fundraising operation, and who are their masters? You know, I I get all that. Here, here's one I wanted to hit really quickly when we talk about just you know the economic 
environment has changed pretty dramatically, as we just kind of touched upon in, in just the last two years. And obviously, the last three years since the pandemic started, you know, it's, it's kind of been a very volatile situation. How, how have you guys seen, you know, at, at, well, in both organizations, you know, Team Rubicon and Groundswell, you know, how have you seen, you know, um, the propensity for people to give and, and, and philanthropy in general, um, especially when we know that, you know, lots of parts of this country really came together and tried to help, you know, like their, their fellow citizens in need. But I'm just curious, from a more institutionalized standpoint, how is headwinds to an economy with rising inflation and the potential for rising unemployment, that sort of thing, how has that affected um, you know, giving in general? So, so America is a really unique place. But you know, relative to philanthropy, America is the most generous nation on the planet. It's not even, the second place isn't even close. Yeah. Um, and recessions do dampen individual giving slightly. But you know, what's really interesting is Americans will still continue to give to charity even in a recessionary period, and they'll cut other spending elsewhere in their lives, but they'll continue to give. And that's just really remarkable. I think it says something about a special element of American life. You know, beyond the individual giving foundations who have money set aside, they have, you know, they're sitting on huge piles of, of, of cash. Uh, they actually step up in these moments. They understand that the need will increase. Food banks uh, will have a, a larger drain. Things like domestic violence spike in times of economic uncertainty. So you have just a lot of needs. You know, every every social issue is exacerbated in these moments and often you know foundations will step up to fill voids if they if they arise. There is so much money pooled at the top. Look at the amazing work that like Mackenzie Scott is doing. Like um, look look at the Gates Foundation, look at Eric Schmidt just announced a new fan. There's so much money that's pooled at the top. The yeah. problem is efficient distribution to the places where it can actually do good, right? And this is part of what was so what's yeah, well we'll go there either. But the but the 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 idea of getting the money to where it can do the most good, this is back to what I was saying before about the decentralization of the giving down to like on the ground, someone who can see that, oh, this would be very helpful in my neighborhood if I gave this away. And technology's promise was always that we could make things more efficient through technology. Philanthropy hasn't gotten the treatment that normal financial services has gotten from technology yet. But couldn't it have like the billions and billions of dollars flowing through at a more efficient level and actually just do better for us this time around in a downturn? Fascinating to see, you know, how Groundswell progresses, and I think when we come out of whatever this economic period we're in, it really seems like, um, especially how, you know, a divided America on a lot of different fronts. When you think about the example that you gave about Planned Parenthood, is a really fascinating one. What tools and platforms like yours might be, you know, a, a great outlet for people to kind of, you know, kind of funnel, um, you know. Money in a really effective way to causes that they care about at a time where privacy is is, is a huge focus. A huge. I mean that, that that example is real, and it's and it's a and it's I think a big deal. And also, if you think about it, like there are issues where where 90 percent of the, the the population it's certainly a strong majority. Look what happened post Dobbs, right? And uh, in, in the election in was it Tennessee, I believe. Yeah, and like, in Kansas, and in Ka Kansas, right, Kansas. Yeah, yeah. But like it was a validation that like there is there is a majority support, but there isn't unanimous support. So it's very hard for corporations to take a stand. But if the corporation can give it to the employees to give away, a majority of people will be giving to the causes that they believe in. So, like, so these 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 places where a very vocal 
small minority are stopping corporations from doing the right thing. They're holding them hostage. You can actually get the money to people to do it. Like that's, I, I think that's one of the things we need to do just generally Gr- ground 12 first. And then, but like in general, there's a bunch of things that a majority of the country would be around. And like, so we can help with that. Yeah. Listen, I hope that any listeners here who are just like all of this might be new to them. I mean, when I heard, when I met you and I heard about ground, this, this was not something that flew through me as a service in, in these sorts of donor advised funds. They were just not in my purview. And I just, yeah. Think that you guys are uh, onto something. I'm pretty fascinated by it. So if you are running a corporation or you work somewhere and you're interested in this sort of stuff, ask about it. I guess it would be groundswell.io. All right. Well, on that note, um, Jake Wood, uh, he is the founder of Team Rubicon. Go support Team Rubicon. We will be supporting uh, Team Rubicon. Joe's on the board of T- Team Rubicon. They have their uh, annual gala. Um, you have raised how much since you started Team Rubicon? Three hundred and fifty million dollars. It's amazing. That's truly amazing. So go check that out, people. Groundswell.io. Jake is the CEO, founder of that. Joe Marchese, thank you. Uh, executive chairman of Groundswell. Co-executive chairman of Groundswell. We didn't get to, we didn't get to today. We had, a, we had a lot of ground to cover, but like uh, uh, right at the very beginning, um, actually another member of Jake's board, uh, Adam Miller, um, a very, very successful entrepreneur, one of the most prolific investors in Southern California, uh, also came on. So so Jake isn't kidding when he says he has an unfair advantage. Yeah, creating unfair advantages and uh, you know packing all, all my mentors uh, into, into, into Groundswell. Swell. Check out Groundswell. Shout out Adam Miller. Um, and also, Joe, you're also a build partner. And you've been a great mentor. You said this before about stacking the decks and this and that. Joe's been so helpful to Guy and myself and what we're building here at Risk Reversal Media. So whenever we have you involved and, and the intros that you've made over the years have been um, truly amazing. So thank you guys for being here on OK Computer. Yeah, thanks for having us on. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.